0: are excited, and dancers one by one Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this episode, we're going to discuss the moral continuum I first referenced in episode 7 of this series entitled "Deuteronomy." As promised, we're going to provide further understanding of this continuum in order to give you a deep knowledge of exactly how we know that morality is based on flourishing and suffering. We'll also elaborate further on how to move yourself, your loved ones, and society at large along this continuum. To do this, we will demonstrate a mechanism for ensuring that you are increasing flourishing and avoiding suffering. Keeping the shilling Standard in mind, that is, do unto others as they would have you do unto them, let's visualize the Moral Continuum. The Moral Continuum is a horizontal line with two arrows, one on each end. On the left, we have suffering, and on the right, we have flourishing. Next, we place a dot on the line in an arbitrary place, and that dot represents you, or someone you love, or society at large, or even all of humanity. Exactly what the dot represents will depend largely on the moral question you're trying to answer. Before we discuss moral questions and moral problems and how to produce moral answers and solutions that move the dot away from suffering and towards flourishing, let's first establish how we know that morality is about suffering and flourishing. After all, there are those that don't believe that morality is based on suffering and flourishing. The most basic definition of morality was discussed in episode 10 of this series and was stated as, quote, "When we are dealing with the subjective assignment of the value of good or bad onto any act or thing, we are talking about morality." Unquote. This was essentially a dictionary definition of morality. Notice that it doesn't say anything about suffering or flourishing. There are other things to notice about this definition as well. The first is that all our work is cut out for us. This definition doesn't provide us with any moral direction and implies that any single individual person can just come up with any morality they please. Thus, the second problem with this definition becomes apparent. It doesn't mention the importance of evidence so the moral claims made utilizing this definition are baseless. In other words, this definition of morality suggests that morality is subjective, meaning that it's decided by the individual, and that morality can be relative, meaning that those individuals can decide what is moral as a collective or societally. In response to this directionless definition of morality, many people have attempted to implement an objective moral system like the one I discussed in episode 12 of this series. There, we find the height of immorality due to the source of these proposed moral systems. The source is a moral arbiter or third party, often supernatural, that dictates morality to us from on high. The folks that invoke an objective moral arbiter fail on all counts. They fail to include the subjective element of morality, our human experience. They fail to engage with our only objective source for moral knowledge, evidence, and they fail to question the soundness of taking moral direction from an entity that isn't human and therefore doesn't flourish or suffer in the same ways that we do. Thus, what pleases this moral arbiter can and often is completely immoral when put into the context of an evidence-based moral system like the one I'm promoting. So, based on this information, we can determine that mor- what morality isn't. But now, let's determine what morality is. Is. At its most basic, morality is defined as an evidence based system or methodology used to direct our thoughts, feelings, and actions towards promoting human flourishing while avoiding or diminishing human suffering. At the very least, our actions should not cause suffering, while at the very most, Our thoughts, feelings, and actions should move all of humanity towards flourishing and away from suffering. This is the definition of morality that I'm proposing here and now. But how do I know that this is correct? What if there is someone, or a whole society of people, who think the opposite of this? What if someone rejects these concepts altogether and believes that morality is whatever their favorite moral arbiter dictates? How are we to tell who is correct? These are very important questions that require answers. And how do we answer important questions? By referring to the evidence. Let's start by debunking the notion that morality could be the opposite of the moral system I'm promoting. Perhaps morality is just anyone's subjective assignment of the value of good or bad onto any thought, feeling, or action. This is the dictionary definition we've been re- referencing. And generally, the definition most people accept How do we know that this definition is incorrect? Well, for starters, let's dig into the concepts of both good and bad. According to our definition, any person could arbitrarily assign the value of good or bad onto any action. Thus, two different people could make conflicting claims. And according to our definition, both of them could be correct. This, of course, is impossible. The same thought, feeling, or action cannot be both good and bad if the words good and bad mean anything at all. So the next logical step is to figure out what we mean by the words good and bad. For something to be either good or bad, they have to be in relation to something. There has to be something objective we are measuring the thought, feeling, or action against. So right away, we are brought out of the subjective and into the objective realm. While it is true that anyone can assign the value of good or bad onto an action, to determine who is correct, we need to assess objective evidence. So what evidence do we have and where does it come from? Let's look back at our definition to see if there is any guidance there. The subjective assignment of good or bad comes from a person. Thus... Morality comes from people. Homo sapiens. Some people tell you that each and every one of you has their own equally sound morality, while other people will direct you to a book written by people where a moral arbiter dictates what is and isn't moral. No matter where we look, it's always people that we find making moral claims. Look far and wide and research every book ever written on morality, and all the evidence will point to one source, homo sapiens, people. So, at its most basic, the evidence tells us that morality is based on people. People conceive of it, they act upon it, and they judge how others act as either moral or immoral. So, if we're going to look for evidence of what thoughts, feelings, and actions are either moral or immoral, then we are going to be collecting that evidence from people. Now that we've established where we will procure our evidence, let's determine how we distinguish good from bad. To do this, we need to start by compiling human data sets, that is, evidence gathered from humanity. Let's fill the first human data set with subjective moral facts. We'll do this by considering murder. It's widely understood that people don't want to be murdered. Just the thought of it causes them mental suffering in the forms of anxiety, fear, denial, rage, and other emotional anguish. All people worldwide report that they do not want to be murdered. In the places where people are murdered often, and without regard to this subjective human data set, we see people fleeing these areas in great numbers. They immigrate to other locations where murder isn't commonplace. Those that stay... Report all manner of suffering, emotional and mental trauma, so severe that it can cause them to suffer many years after the initial trauma. PTSD is a real issue among those that have endured murderous periods in their lives, and it manifests in the form of vivid flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, nightmares, mental and emotional triggers, and even physical pain. These are all data points that we would include in a subjective human data set related to the importance people place on living in a society that doesn't engage in widespread murder. Such data points are bad because they are evidence of suffering. If bad means anything in the human moral lexicon, then it's data points like the ones I just described that provide evidence for something bad. I could provide a similar example filled with subjective data points we could then use to demonstrate that something is good. But I think that you get my point. Rather than provide a subjective example for good, let's now look to an objective human data set that demonstrates how an action is defined as good. An objective human dataset filled with objective data points will further help us establish good from bad, and perhaps most importantly, will do so without any subjective spin. An example of an objective human data set we have already built is the importance of clean drinking water. It's an objective fact that homo sapiens that have access to clean drinking water flourish and thrive. Water is, after all, a basic necessity, one that is in short supply, And the communities that have been able to procure either a reliable source of clean drinking water or the means to clean water and store it for future use, or both, are currently thriving. In this case, when I say thriving, I mean that they no longer need to worry about dirty water. So they are able to engage in more productive activities. Activities like reading and learning, raising children that live, inventing things improving their infrastructure, and contributing to the flourishing of others. I also mean that these communities don't have to worry about the many diseases that are linked to unsafe drinking water. They don't have to experience people all around them dying of preventable diseases. And perhaps most importantly, they don't have to sit idly by while their beloved mothers, brothers, and children die. No matter what phase of thriving a community is engaged in at this moment, the issue of clean drinking water has to be addressed, or will have to be addressed very early in their process of flourishing. How do I know this? Because we have mountains of evidence collected by the World Health Organization, the United Nations Children's Fund, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the United States Agency for International Development, and many, many others that demonstrate these facts. In fact, the benefits of access to clean drinking water is so well evidenced that it is considered to be a basic human necessity by all the scientific organizations that deal in medicine, public safety, public health, and biology worldwide. One cannot even consider the notion of health and well-being without addressing humanity's need for clean drinking water. Some organizations even go so far as to say that it is a basic human right. Furthermore, each and every one of us knows intuitively that we require safe, clean drinking water. That is why I chose this as an example. But make no mistake, all the science that we've ever engaged in relating to the health, well-being, and thriving of human beings very clearly and plainly concludes that access to clean drinking water is a necessity for human flourishing. One might even say that this fact is so obvious that it can be considered common sense. But I don't like the term common sense, so I'll just stick to the objective scientific evidence that demonstrates beyond any doubt that in order for humanity to flourish, first they must attain access to clean drinking water. If anything can be considered good, in the moral lexicon, then access to clean drinking water is good. And I can say that without any reservation due to the evidence that supports this conclusion. The last two paragraphs of information demonstrate a process for determining good from bad. And I'm going to spell out that process for you now before moving on. First, we have to determine a question or problem. In this case, the question is, how do we determine a moral good from a moral bad? The next step is to determine where we will look to gather our evidence. In this case, we've identified that it is human beings that will be our subjects. And so the evidence we collect will have to be from humans. Next, we need to recognize that human beings provide us with two different types of data sets that we can fill with evidence. One, subjective data set because humans have a subjective a subjective experience and are able to vocalize their inner thoughts and feelings, and one objective data set, because human beings have very clear and distinct physical needs in order to flourish. So now it's time to collect the evidence and place them into human data sets in order to aggregate the data for further analysis. Once we have all the data, then we can query those data to determine what thoughts, feelings, and actions we will engage with in order to promote flourishing and avoid or diminish suffering. This is the process of being or becoming a moral person. And I encourage you to engage with this process as much as you can until the process itself starts to become second nature. Once you accept the evidence and practice with this system, your moral conclusions will start to feel less like a process and more like intuition, which is how most people experience morality in their everyday lives. So now that we've identified a methodology for determining good from bad, Let's re-engage with our definition and the questions I posed earlier. Again, I'm claiming that morality is defined as an evidence-based system or methodology used to direct our thoughts and feelings and actions towards promoting human flourishing while avoiding or diminishing human suffering. And the dictionary definition says that morality is the arbitrary assignment of the value of good or bad onto an action. Based on the evidence we've just reviewed, we must conclude that no person can just assign the value of good or bad onto an action arbitrarily. The assessment of either good or bad requires that we first review evidence. Thus, it's the evidence that determines whether an action is either good or bad. The dictionary was correct when it suggested that we need to look to people for our moral conclusions, But the subjective nature of morality isn't that any human being can arbitrarily assign it. The subjective nature of morality is that the subjective data that we collect comes from individual human beings. Individual human beings that have a varied subjective experience. That subjective data is then aggregated to give us an evidence-based foundation for how all of humanity prefers to be treated. Just as I stated above, all of humanity unanimously reports that they suffer when they are murdered. So while each individual account of this suffering is subjectively reported, the culmination of their accounts provides us with a data set that can be objectively verified, peer-reviewed, recreated, and falsified. In other words, this subjective data is scientific. This further supports my definition for morality. That morality is an evidence-based system or methodology just like the scientific method. The scientific nature of moral data is even more pronounced when we take into account the objective data we've collected relating to human flourishing and suffering. From our example above, the scientific data that we've collected on the benefits to human beings when they have clean drinking water is undeniable. We have human data sets filled with objective physical, emotional, psychological, physiological, and neural evidence that demonstrates the differences between human beings that drink clean water versus those that do not. And these data sets are completely scientific in nature. They have data in them that is in no way subjective. These data are the very foundation of our sciences of human health and well-being. In conclusion, my definition is correct because all of the evidence we have regarding subjective human data sets, objective human data sets, humanity, and our determinations of both good and bad require that we rely on an evidence-based system or methodology. Not that any one person or group of people or supernatural moral arbiter can dictate what is moral. Thus, we must further conclude that the moral good is when we think, feel, and act in ways that promote human flourishing, and that the moral bad is when we think, feel, and act in ways that create human suffering. This is a matter of fact. There is more that I'd like to cover regarding the moral continuum, but I think that I'll save that for a supplementary series I'm planning that relates to the Bible 5.0. So that is all for this week. Please tune in next week when we cover the third component of our evidence-based moral system, the human data set. Thank you and this has been Ear Seduction.